Okay, we'd like to welcome you to part 5 of our current event and weekly Bible study for February 3rd, 2008. And I believe this is a record. We've never had five parts in one day. We actually had to come back to get all this in in one day. Uh, we're meeting a second time tonight. And uh, this next part, which is going to flow with the last, is called the biblical role of wives. So now, in this particular thing, which I'm going to make available online in a, in a big PDF document that you can access, there's three sermons here from Pastor John Weaver. Uh, part 5, 6, and 7 on the family. And part 5 and 6 is the role of the wife, and part 7 is on the role of the husband. And uh, I would highly advise you listen to these, as well as this teaching, because, uh, as, as I said before, he's an incredible expositor of the Word. And we're going to reiterate a little bit about what we've been talking about, because this is kind of a separate teaching. And uh, in order to do this, we, we need to uh, kind of reiterate some of the things we've already talked about. Now, in Genesis 2.20-24, through 24, Genesis 2.20-24, through 24, we read, And Adam gave name to all the cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meat for him. This is where we get that word, help meet. Okay? Meaning, like, Adam's helper, I guess, is how you would put it. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And when he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead, instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made a woman. And brought her unto the man, and Adam said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In a biblical marriage. That's how it's supposed to happen. And this is something that should happen. Okay? Um, so, in this way, a rib was taken from Adam to make a woman. When they are, and when they are biblically joined in marriage, they complete each other and become one flesh. Okay, because something was taken out of a man to actually make her, so when they come together, it's like they're completing one another. So as a result of the fall, though, in Genesis 3.16, it says, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shall thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Well, this is the first part where it talks about that the husband is actually going to rule over the wife. And it said it right here at the very, very foundation of when man and woman were formed. Okay? She will be a helpmeet, and he will rule over her, and, and her desire will be to him. Now again, this sounds may sound really offensive to a woman's liver. But I'm sorry, this is what the Bible says. And this is why the very reason why the Bible will eventually be banned. Because it's going to be considered, and already really is considered, hate speech. It's hate speech against sodomy, against homosexuals. You know, it's not politically correct in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, but... You know, the Word of God is the Word of God. So, within the male and female relationship, who is biblically supposed to lead? Well, let's see what the Bible says. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis 3.16, where it says, He shall rule over thee? Hasn't changed anywhere in the Bible, from front to back. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, <clears throat> even as Christ is the head of the church, and, and is Savior of the body. Ephesians, then the next verse says, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, again, this is when you have a biblical husband ruling over a biblical wife. This is the ideal way it should be. Okay? Obviously, anymore, it's not this way at all. It's not even close to this. But in an ideal situation, therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, this is, in, this is obviously in a Christian relationship, because it keeps referring to Christ, so let the wives be under their own husbands in everything. The problem is, is today, the men are so weak-willed, and so out of the will of God most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, that they don't have the ability to lead their wives. They can't even lead themselves. So then you you turn you get it all mixed up. You got everything gets backwards, and the women are leading the, the husbands because they won't take the role or the lead. Did you want to say something? Yeah, Doug just brought up a really good point. That if we go back to Ephesians five twenty four, it says, "Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ." Well, that's been done away with. You think that's the case in Smiley Joe Osteen, Osteen's church, or Benny Hinn, or any of these other mega churches, or most churches around the corner from where you live? The church is not subject unto Christ. They're not going by the word of God anymore. Bits and pieces. So, because that's not the case, now you've got the other thing being all messed up. Where the wives are not subject to the husband. One thing leads to another. If everything were done in decency and in order, and set up biblically, the church would be a whole lot different place. But it's not. We've gotten away from our first love. Meaning Christ. So then it goes on to say, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So, the Bible says, so let the wives be to be to their own husbands and everything, subject to their husbands. And then what does it say to the husbands? Husbands, love your wives. It doesn't say husbands, be subject to your wives. It says husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Because the, the husband is being compared to Christ in this relationship because he's the head of the wife and Christ is the head of the husband. So Christ is our example. Okay, so this is a, it's kind of like a chain of command here that the Bible's saying this is the way it should be. But it's not. It's not even close to that. And then it goes in verse 26 that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. That Christ might sanctify. What does that word mean? To be made holy and set apart. Sanctify. That Christ might sanctify and cleanse it. This is talking about the church. Who Christ loved and gave himself for, according to the verse before that. So that he, meaning Christ, might sanctify and cleanse it, the church, with the washing of the water by the word. Washing the water by the word? That's how we get spiritually sanctified, by reading the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And with faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So, that was Psalm 119, verse 89. And uh, Proverbs, Psalm 12, verse 8 and 9, before that I quoted. So, 
this is something that's very, very important. But see, we, we've thrown the Bible out. How do we get sanctified and cleansed if we're reading some corrupted word? How is that possible? How do we get washed? I mean, we're living in a cesspool in humanity. It's filthy. It's like hard... It, it's so hard to stay away from the filth. Now, I'm not saying we go into the filth. and I'm saying that living day to day, go to the grocery store. Just try to get to the checkout aisle. Your barrage with all these half-naked women and all these, I mean, it's tough. It, it, everywhere you go, it's like this. The devil has set up society to corrupt and pollute you. You read the word of God to get sanctified and cleansed. It's not, it's a, it's a continual process. That's what the Word of God is. And it's also sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to the dividing of the sun or the soul and spirit and the joint and marrow and is, a, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what the Word of God is. Okay? It's a purifier. It's a sanctifier. It's what we need. I have the Word of God playing in my house 24-7. The book of Revelation. I know the devils don't like it. It's the Word of God. The Bible says my, my Word will not return void. Sounds like a safe bet. Not bet, but sounds like a safe thing to me to do. So I'm just, these are just little hints. Um, and then let's go further. Verse 27, that he, meaning Christ, might present it to himself, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Well, when something has been cleansed and sanctified through the washing of the water of the word, it's not going to have spot, it's not going to have wrinkle, it's not going to have any such thing. Why? Because it's been sanctified and cleansed. That's what the word does. That's why I keep going back to what Bible are you reading? Are you reading a perverted, corrupted word? How are you going to get cleansed from that? How is that possible? Well, I used the soap, it was called dirty soap. I don't know why, the more I scrubbed, the dirtier I got. Or I just didn't ever seem like I could quite get clean. That's when you're reading a perverted word. Like, you know, the NIV with over 64,000 words removed. From two corrupt texts, originally. From the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticanus, where it was derived from. Into the revised version of 1881. Translated by two occultists named Westcott and Hort. How are you going to get cleansed with that? Just something to think about. So not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Next verse, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife, loveth himself. See, that's the big admonition to the man, is to love the wife. It says, wives, submit yourself on your own husbands. What is the big admonition to the man? To love your wives, even as you would love your own self. The Bible says, a greater, greater love no man hath than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friend. Would you lay down your life for your wife? Even as Christ laid down his life for the church? Something to think about. That, that's the greatest form of love there is, it says. You lay down your life for your friend. Will you lay down your life for Christ? These are questions you should be asked. And if you can't answer in the affirmative, then ask God to give you the strength and the faith that no matter what it takes, you're not going to turn your back on Him. Ever. Because God can do that. But only God can do it. You can't muster it up. You can't do it. And if you have nothing inside you that feels that way, then maybe you're not even saved. 
These are just, it's like, kind of like a spiritual checkup. When you read the verses, it's like a mirror. And usually, most people, and I know myself, I don't really like what I see in the mirror most of the time. I'm including myself in this. So I'm not just saying this in like some condemning way, like I'm Grand Poobah Pontiff over here, thinking I'm perfect. I'm preaching as much to myself as I am to anyone else. So, let's go further. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Remember, this is like a big analogy, you know, examples as we're looking at here. Next verse. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. Remember the Bible says we're the body of Christ? The body of Christ. We are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bone. We're the body of Christ. And that's why each part of the body of Christ has a different function. Now, we talked about that earlier. Then Ephesians 5 verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto the wife and they too shall be one flesh. Isn't that what we just read in Genesis? Yep. Hasn't changed. Hasn't changed at all. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ in the church. Praise the Lord. I mean, I, this is, to me, this is awesome. Next verse. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. They keep saying it over and over and over again. The biggest obligation a man has to his wife in this regard is to love his wife. Because, see, if you truly love somebody, so many other things are going to get taken care of. You know? If you truly love somebody, just like I always say the fear of God, if the fear of God's on a person, so many other things just get taken care of automatically. Because there's a byproduct of fear of the Lord, there's a byproduct of love, if it's true and if it's genuine. And see that, and then the, what does it say then to the wife? Okay, so here's the, to sum it all up in verse Ephesians 5.33, to sum it up, in a nutshell, it says, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And that the wife see that she reverence her husband. That's the main thing she's... And that is, that's also in respect to submitting herself. I don't see very many submissive wives. I'm sorry. I sure wasn't married to one. I had four years of... I'm not going to say hell on earth because I don't think that's an accurate analogy. I think that's doing hell and injustice kind of. <laughs> None of us could conceive the, the, the horrors of hell. But I had, oh, I had a dude. But you know what? I married her as a, ba uh, a baby Christian, basically on a dare. I do believe I was saved, but God used that four years to chasten me. I was miserable. I thought, man, you know, I got away with a lot of stuff before. Why am I so miserable now? I didn't know about the chasing of the Lord. I didn't know anything. I was a baby Christian. I had somebody hand me a living Bible. She basically said, uh, you're not man enough to marry me. I'm like, oh, yes, I am. Took her right down to the courthouse and married her. That, that, boy, I was smart. Really smart. Brilliant. On my end. Oh, yeah. And the woman was and is an absolute devil. And I'm not saying that because I'm mad. Because I don't have a problem forgiving people when I'm speaking truth. God, you know what? I got exactly what I deserved. I got four years of absolute, total, utter misery. And I really deserved death. Really? What a stupid decision. Oh, I suffered. Oh, unlike anything I'd ever known. I deserved it. I really did. And guess what? I was a weak-willed, spineless jellyfish, essentially. Spiritually gelded, essentially. 
I could not serve God because she would have no gods before her. That's the truth. And a woman like that will not have any gods before her. Because she has to be the center. Nobody can be the head but her. That's how it was. It was either that or essentially the highway type of thing. And uh, I praise the Lord because my little girl came out of it. He gave me beauty for ashes there. I don't deserve her either. But praise the Lord. But I learned the hard way. I've been... You know, but I don't see, you know, I, the time I've spent in churches, I have just seen very, very little of truly biblical husbands or wives. I'm not going to just blame it all on the wives. I'm not. I would love to have a biblical wife, but hey, you know, I just haven't seen too many instances or scenarios where they're, just like biblical husbands aren't really abundant very much. Now, I believe the people listening to these broadcasts are also, particularly if you've stuck with me this long, you know, we're talking a special kind of Christian. Hopefully, this end time remnant that we talk about a lot. So, I'm doing this more for, for obviously more for you than anyone else. Because most people do not want to hear this type of preaching. At all. Because they don't want to go by the Bible. They want to go by whatever feels right. Whatever their opinion speaks to them. Those types of things. So, this is just something to bear in mind. And there's my little testimony about that whole particular mess I came out of. So I think, in some ways, I'm kind of uniquely qualified to speak about this, because I've been through it, I've done it, I've done it the wrong way, um, and uh, bore the consequences, as I should have. So then if we go to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and that the head of every woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Now there's another confirmation. Remember, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing is established. Well, these are witnesses in the word of God. That's another confirmation. Here's another one. 1 Peter 3.1 Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. That if any obey not the word, they may, also, they may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Now we talked about this in the last teaching, this verse. Who, who, whose adorning let not be the outward adorning of the plighting of the hair and of the wearing of gold and the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. I'll be honest with you, women that are bold and loud and cantankerous, there's, I find that repulsive. That's just me. Now I realize that the women in modern day the most of the women in the modern day age that we live in now are their own women. They have their own careers. They have their own whatever. And they're not meek and they're not quiet. And they're, gonna, they're not going to have any man telling them what to do. Oh no. That's their choice. Okay? But um, in God's eyes, those that have a meek and a quiet spirit are in the sight of God. Those, those are of great price. Remember, even the Bible says that in Isaiah 66. To this man will I look. He that is of a contrite and a meek spirit, and trembleth at my word. It's the same for a man or a woman, okay? Because when you get in the presence of God, you should tremble, and you should be meek, and you should be quiet, and you shouldn't. You should be humble. Considering, you know, what you are in relation to the Lord. 
So if we go further, verse 5, For after this manner in old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjections under their own husbands. Now notice here, it says, The manner in old time, the holy women also who trusted in God. What does that imply? That implies faith. All of this always boils back to faith. Do you have faith in God? Do you have faith in the Word of God? Because if you have faith in the Word of God, there's going to be works following. Not works preceding, but works following. Because they had faith in God, they adorned themselves, and they were in subjection to their own husbands. That was a byproduct of their faith. Just an interesting little point I wanted to bring out there. And then it says, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, now this word Lord is little L, not big L, Okay, so don't get me wrong there. Calling him Lord. A Lord is somebody that, in this regard, a little L, would be somebody that kind of has the rule over you. It would be in, it would be in line up with the Bible saying woman to be in subjection to your own husbands. Okay, that's what it's talking It's not like he's her Lord and Savior. Capital L, capital S. Okay, so understand that as well. And then it says, whose daughters are ye, meaning you're the daughter of Sarah, Whose daughters are ye, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Now, I think that's in reference to not falling away from the faith. Okay? And then, 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as under the weaker vessel. Oh, we can't say that. That's not politically correct. Well, are they the stronger vessel physically? Tell you what, the way these uh, a lot of these uh, butch lesbians walk around, they act like they could take out. They probably could take out most men. I just find that really repulsive. To me, that's offensive. I'm sorry, that's big pet peeve for me. Butch lesbians, big They offend me more than an effeminate man. I don't know. I just cannot. Oh. And I really believe the Bible says, Be ye angry and sin not. It's called righteous indignation. It's an abomination and an affront to God. I mean, considering when you get into the whole gay and lesbian scene, that is at the very, very lowest depths of depravity. These are people that are demon-possessed to the toenails. Does it mean I think, you know, I, I want them all to go to hell? No, I want them to go to heaven, but there's very low likelihood they're going to. Because the Bible talks about in Romans 1 that they've been turned over a reprobate mind to do those things which are not inconvenient. Men burning after men and women burning after women. If you've gone that far, guaranteed you don't have a whole lot more chance to get saved. Because that is the, one of the worst things you can do in God's eyes. There's always two things that precede God's severe judgment on a nation if you look at it in the Bible. Typically two things, and those two things are child sacrifice and sodomy. Or, or in this regard, sodomy and the fact of men with men, women with women. Those are usually the two things that precipitate God's severest judgment in the scripture. If you look at Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 11, and Jeremiah 14, it gets to a point where God says, don't even pray for these people because I won't hear your prayer. Your prayers are useless. They've had all these opportunities to repent or get saved, and they didn't do it, and they're not going to do it, because their consciences have been seared with a hot iron, according to 1 Timothy 4.1. Why? Because they've given heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. They've spoken lies and hypocrisy, and then the natural byproduct of that is then they have their consciences seared with a hot iron. So, um, 
let's read this last verse again. First Peter three seven. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life. That your prayers be not hindered. See, this is a way you can get your prayers hindered. You don't give honor unto your wife. You don't love your wife. You don't honor her as the weaker vessel. And it's being heirs together in the grace of life. Well, if you don't do these things as a husband, don't expect to get your prayers answered. There's so many reasons, there's so many ways we can get our prayers not answered. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Where does it say that? Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard what's iniquity? Sin. It's easy. That's why the Bible says, Cleanse me from presumptuous sins and secret faults that they do not have dominion over me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. See, presumptuous sins are sins that you don't perceive as a sin because you're presuming that they're not a sin. So when you ask the Lord to cleanse you from presumptuous sins and secret faults, these are things you're not even aware of. Things that the devil has blinded your eyes to are things that you've never been pointed out. I think that's why it's important. That's why you hear me pray that so much. Because I don't ever want to get to a point where I think, oh, I've, I've got everything figured out. I, I sin no more. I have transcended good and evil. No, I don't think so. Uh-uh. We're not going to get into that state until we're on the other side with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So, don't ever get to that point, because if you get to that point, that's pride. So, let's go further. Titus 2.3. The aged women likewise, <clears throat> that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Now this is the aged women. Not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young woman to be sober, to love their husbands, and to love their children. I'm sorry, I didn't see a whole lot of this going on in the churches. I saw the aged women being essentially the heads of the church. The churches I was in. Behind the scenes, they were. They were the ones that ruled the roost. You could have the pastor up there all day long. They weren't the ones controlling the church. Because the wives could make their lives miserable at home if they so chose. They knew how to do it. They knew how to work it. I, I observe these things. I lived through a really bad marriage. So I kind of, you know, and I've observed things when I went into the church. The Lord showed me these things. I wish, it, I wish this wasn't so. I don't, I, don't, I don't take glory or pleasure in pointing these things out. I'm just pointing out what I've seen. But they're, they're supposed to teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Man, I'm sorry. I didn't see a whole lot of that when I was in the church. And then to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Well, well, then can we just transpose this and say, well, what if they're not discreet or chaste or keepers or what if they don't, what if they, what if their feet don't want to abide in their own house like it talks about in Proverbs. It talks about the, the way of a harlot. Her feet don't, don't want to abide in her own house. What if they're not good and they're bad? What if they're not obedient to their husbands? This is more the norm. They could put on this church show all day long on Sunday mornings and go and put on their best foot forward and then get in the car and it's a totally different deal for the other six days of the week. Well, what if, what if that doesn't happen? Well, it says then the word of God will be blasphemed. 
Because people see them and they say, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want anything to do with it. Because they're a bunch of hypocrites. I like to reverse verses because you can assume the exact opposite from a verse. I don't think we're doing anything unscriptural there. So then let's go further. Who was created for whom? 1 Corinthians 11.5 But the woman that prayeth and prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. Now, I got this email the other day from a guy saying, Oh, all women have to have their heads covered. Didn't you know that? Whatever. They, they were doing it in the, in, in the old times. In the, in the, okay. Okay, well let's just see what the Bible says. Because I could really care less about anyone's opinion on this matter. I want to see what the Word of God says. Okay, again, let God be true and every man a liar. But every woman that, that, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that, for that even... For that is even all one as if she were shaven. So it would be like going in, essentially with her head uncovered, it would be as though she goes in with her head shaved. And that dishonors her head. Now, bear with me on this, okay? Bear with me on this. We're going to get to the answer here. First, and then the next verse, or verse 7 says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image of the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. That's another thing the Bible says about the man. That... She's the glory of, of, of essentially her husband. A man's not supposed to cover his head when he prays. Did you know that? You're not supposed to wear a hat when you pray as a man. So that could be a way you get your, hair, your prayers hindered. Just wear a hat all the time if you're a man praying. Oh, now you're being legalistic. I'm sorry, the Bible says it right here. Okay? I did not make up the rule book. We're just pointing out the rules. Okay? Again, have you ever heard a sermon preached on that? That's why when people sit down traditionally at dinner tables, they always remove their hats when they prayed. That's why. Okay? It says here, but the woman is the glory of the man. So for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for inasmuch as he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Remember the husband's the head of the wife? Christ is the head of the husband. It's a big chain of, of command here. There's reasons for all this. And then the next verse, verse 8, says, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. What does that make reference to? Back to Genesis, when he removed the rib from Adam and made Eve. The man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. That's what that's in reference to, if that confuses you. And then the next verse, Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Now remember, the title of this was, Who was created for whom? Adam needed a helpmeet. He told that to God. God supplied him with a helpmeet. Does that make the woman any less of a person? No! Remember, it says we're heirs in glory. Okay? There's neither, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free. So don't get me wrong about that either. So, oh, I think, bless God, a man's superior in, in spirituality and, and will rule over the woman here on earth as in heaven. Well, now you're, now you're being extra biblical. Okay? That's why we have to compare Scripture to Scripture. It's very, very important to keep comparing Scripture to Scripture. To get the full picture. So, says it right here, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. 
Then the next verse, or actually verse 13, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 13, Judging yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Now we're going back to that again. We started in verse 5, where it said, Every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. Okay, now let's go to verse 13. Judging yourselves, is it, is it comely, in meaning is it right, that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Verse 14. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory for her. Here it is. For her hair is given her for a covering. That's what the covering of a woman is in this sense. It says it right here. Her long hair is as a cover. Well, I can't grow my hair. Well, grow it as long as you can. Okay? Well, I just went through chemo. Hey, listen, God knows your heart. Okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to, to strain at gnats and swallow camels here. I'm just trying to point out things. I will say this, if you can't grow your hair, there are two things I've found that really help. One of them is organic silica, and another thing is called MSM. If you have any questions, just email me. I'm not trying to sell you something, I'm just saying, it does help your hair grow, and your nails. Your hair is primarily sulfur. Okay, MSM is methyl sulfinamide, it's an organic form of sulfur. Silica is incredibly important also for hair and nail strength, so anyway, we're deficient in many things today that we weren't deficient in a ways back. So, anyway, I just want to throw that out to you. So, let's go back to this, though. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame on him. So now, you know what this also implies? That if a man has long hair, as a woman does, that's a shame to a man. That's why when I see all these long-haired, hippie pictures of Jesus, supposedly, I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what Jesus Christ looked like. Those are Catholic portrayals of what Jesus would look like with long hair. Uh-uh. I don't believe it. I don't believe that's what he looks like. Especially that with long hair. Why would, why would he contradict his own word? Because it's a shame for a man to have long hair. It was a shame for Samson to have long hair. I had a guy email me the other day. He had taken a Nazarite vow. They couldn't ever drink wine. They had to grow their hair and not cut it until their appointed time, it says. There was one other thing they couldn't do. Um, one other thing. I don't know. But anyway... A long hair back then was also a shame. And the Nazarite vow was a vow of like humility. Okay? And in fact, I, I, I went over this with Doug. It was a really a neat little study. But it wasn't because Samson had long hair was a good thing or that, or that gives justification. This guy was asking me, he says, well, doesn't this mean we can have long hair if Samson did? No, he took a Nazarite vow. Totally different deal. A, a, an Old Testament Levitical Nazarite vow does not apply to now. We're not under that law anymore. If righteousness come by the law, then our faith is dead and in vain. That's what the Bible says. We're, Christ freed us from the curse of the law. And that's a whole other study. I've done many teachings on that. So again, does not even nature teach it to you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame on him? Now, think about this. If a man had long hair, like a woman... And that's a woman's covering. And this is made reference to here. Do you think having long hair and praying, that would hinder your prayers as well? Just like having your head covered? 
It's one in the same. It's one in the same in this particular thing because I, this might have been before they ever, I mean, they didn't have ball caps back then and hats like we have now. So for them, a man who had long hair when he prayed, that was a shame. You're dishonoring your own head. So today, there's two ways as a man you can get your prayers hindered from a, from a prayer standpoint, a physical prayer standpoint. Either have long hair or wear a hat when you're praying. But a woman, if a woman have long hair, it is, it is a glory to her. Doesn't mean vanity, but the fact remains is that long hair on a woman is feminine. To me, that's attractive. I can't stand when I see women with their hair butched up, and it's mostly you see it in the churches. I'm sorry, but it's true. So many of these women that you go into the church, man, they got their hair cropped up and, and almost it's like the, they, the shortest they can get it. Pastors' wives, all these. I'm like thinking, man, why, aren't you reading your Bible? Now I understand, like you know, I know there's exceptions to every rule, but you know, it's, but God knows your heart, okay? But to me, that's unfeminine. That's unattractive. It's a sign that they're not in subjection or submission to both God and their husband, if you think about it. Because they're sure not, I mean, it's obvious. You know, it's about as obvious if you, as if you see somebody, somebody morbidly obese walking around. You pretty much know they got a problem with gluttony. Pretty much. I mean, I know there's exceptions to every rule. But that's, that's something that's very, very obvious. Okay. Her hair is given to her for a covering. So, I wanted to cover that, even though, you know, because it's part of this. I think it's very important to define that. So, this whole thing about a woman having to wear these little doily things or these little hats over their head for a covering, that doesn't line up with the Word of God at all. Now, the marriage bed. Let's talk about the marriage bed. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise, also the wife unto the husband. Do you realize this is one of the main ways that women try to manipulate men? I'm telling you, I live this. I'm being honest. She was sadistic. My ex-wife. Whew. Let the wife, let the husband run under the wife do benevolence, and likewise also the wife under the husband. You know what I saw? What my experience was? If I didn't do what she wanted me to do, never even think about having any kind of normal relations. Because it wasn't going to happen until I got right with her. She was continually, physically, blackmailing me. And this is very, very prevalent in the church. Very prevalent. Now, I'm not saying it could be the opposite way. Okay? But most of the time, I think it's the, uh, the other. But, and then, why? Why is this whole thing? Well, 1 Corinthians 7, 4 gives us the answer. The wife hath not power over her own, of her own body, but the husband. And likewise, also, the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Now, this is an exception to the rule of wives being in subjection to your own husband. Have you noticed that? 
It says, it says the wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And the likewise also the husband not have to over. This is something where you render to one another due benevolence. There's no submitting to one. You submit to each other. Oh, however, <laughs> I'm sure Smiley Osteen's preaching this in his pulpits this weekend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would love to see that guy just preach one hardcore biblical sermon on something like this and then add hell in there. He'd have a mass exodus. Mass exodus from his church. <laughs> oh, man. The, okay, and then verse 5. And it reiterates this. Defraud ye not one another. It's called defrauding. The Bible's calling this defrauding your partner. You are! Especially when you use it like it was done on me in order to head game somebody. In order to keep them in subjection to your will or whim. It was a control freak mechanism. And many, many, many women use this mightily for their advantage. I'm not saying it can't be done by a man. I'm saying, from my common experience, this is the way it was done. This is what was done to me. This is what's done to a lot of... And so the men become weaker and weaker and weaker because they know if they get out of line, oh, they're going to have that withheld too. Not only is their, is their home life going to be terrible, but they're, they're not going to have the, the marriage bed relationship as well. So the men learn to stay in line and toe the line and be good boys. I'm not saying in every instance, okay? But this is one scenario that plays out. So defraud ye not one another, except it be consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. This is the only time you're supposed to do this. If both of you agree, and you give yourself unto fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. What's incontinency? Well, that means you can't control yourself. Okay? That's why you come together again. Let Satan tempt you for your incontinency. What about women and men working out their salvation? Now this is a verse I wanted to include in here because it would be real easy to read this verse and think, whoa, what is this? Am I saved by works now? 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 15. So bear with me on this. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over man, but to be in silence. Now we've read... The first part of this verse, now we're going to read the last. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression, notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. Now this is a verse that really needs to be rightly divided. Okay? In this verse, Paul encourages the woman not to be discouraged because of the fall, but to know that they have a very important role in the world and in the, in the church. It is possible that this is a faint allusion to God's promise to Eve that her seed would bruise the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. The prophecy of Christ coming as man's Savior. These are David Cloud's comments here that I'm reading. It is a great encouragement to godly women to remember that through woman was the first sinner. The woman, the woman is also the instrument that God used to bring the Savior into the world so also that sinners would be redeemed. Now here's what this verse does not teach. This verse is not teaching that the woman achieve eternal salvation in this manner. How do we know this? Because it would be contradictory to all the other obvious verses in the Bible in regard to the salvation issue. Okay? Remember, 
You compare Scripture to Scripture. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Okay, so let's take this in context of the whole Bible. Salvation is not... Um, is not by faith, charity, and so, well, salvation is by faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by His grace. But in other words, he's saying salvation is not by works. Okay, um, this charity and sobriety and all these other things would be work salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith, without the works, according to Ephesians two eight and nine. For you are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves; it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Point two: This verse does not promise an escape from the birth pain of childbirth. Godly women usually suffer as much do as much as others in childbearing. These are some rumors that have circled surfaced over the years about this verse. And then here's another thing. Three, it does not promise that godly women will never die in childbirth. Many godly women have died while bearing children. Salvation is used here not in the sense of eternal salvation, but in the sense of fruitfulness and purpose in this world. Okay, remember the Bible talks about wives submitting yourself to be to your own husbands, that they should be keepers of home, that they should, you know, submit themselves to their husband, that they should bring up their children, that they should do these. This is the greatest sphere of influence that a woman could be called to. And a man couldn't be called to it because he can't bear children. The main teaching of this verse is that the woman's primary sphere of blessing in this world is the home and her work of bearing and training children. She shall be saved through the instrumentality of bringing up children and guiding the home through the faithful performance of her duties as wife and mother. She shall be saved from the arts of the impostors and from the luxury and vice of this age. In other words, she, by doing these things, by occupying her time with godly things, she is saved from this corruption that is going on all around us. Okay, now this is from a quote from a guy named Wetstein. And, and that's what I'm reading here. She shall be saved through the instrumentality of bringing up children, guiding the home, through the faithful performance of her duties as wife and mother. She shall be saved from the arts of the impostors and from the luxury and vice of the age if, instead of wandering about, she remains at home, cultivates modesty, is subject to her husband, and engages carefully in the training of her children. So we're not talking about eternal salvation, because that would be totally contradictory to the Bible. Okay, but notice it says here, She shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith. Faith is the main thing that's always emphasized. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is how you get saved. You have to have faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to get saved, to freely accept the gift, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's how we get saved. Okay? But that takes faith in order to believe that. So most of the things in the Bible, in regard to our walk with the Lord, always boil back to faith. To prove the point of salvation further, so there's no doubt about this, let's read some more verses. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but, the world through, but that the world through him might be saved. Romans 5, 8, through 10, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by what? By his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. That's how we're saved from wrath, through the Lord. 
through his blood, through his shed blood on the cross, which paid our sin debt. Not by works of righteousness, are we saved, but according to his mercy, he saved us. For if we were if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans eight, sixteen and seventeen. The Spirit speaketh the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Praise the Lord. Romans 10, 8-13 But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, and in thy heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart... Man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whoso believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Well, not according to John Hagee, who believes that essentially the Jews get a get out of jail card free pass. He believes in ethnic salvation, and we don't have to preach to the Jews because they're under a different covenant and they don't need to get saved the same way we do. They're just saved by their blood. through runs through their veins. But the Bible says there's no difference between Jew and Greek. Here. Then it goes on to say for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We already read Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Um, now, what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's Hebrews 1. So faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's why it's faith. Because you hope for it and you don't see it. Because it's faith. If you saw it and it was in front of you, there would be no more faith required. Because it would be there. Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Hebrews 11, verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Can't please him without it. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. That's the whole crux of getting saved. It's not just about praying a little prayer in, in, in your head and not really believing it in your heart. And if you really do, and if you really get converted, there's going to be a change. You know, behold, all things are passed away, all things have become new. You're a new creature in Christ. Things change. And then it goes on to say, and that he is a reward of them that diligently seek him. James 2.18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. This would be like a Catholic. Well, the Catholic has works. They have, you know, the catechism and all the things they did all these years. And then it says, Show me thy faith without thy works. And then it says, I will show thee my faith by my works. But just remember, it's in that order. Most people got the order all mixed up. They want to show you works and then have that point to their faith. But it's not. It's faith produce works. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Hebrews 10.35 says, Cast not away therefore your confidence. This is in regard to our confidence in the hope of salvation. Jesus Christ. That's, what, that's the context of this verse. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and then he sh- and that he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. This is in reference to Jesus coming back. Now, now the just shall live by faith. That's how we live, by faith. It's 
always comes back to faith. Personally, I am so glad it's that way. If you don't feel like you have this, ask God to strengthen your faith. But remember, faith comes up by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Get into the Word of God, your faith is going to get stronger. And you're going to be sanctified because of the washing of the water of the Word. So now the just shall live by faith, but if, but if any man draw back... Now what is this in reference to? This is in reference to drawing back from the faith. It was just talking about faith. Remember, it said, cast not away therefore your confidence. What would that be in reference to? Your faith. The just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall, no, shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that draw back into perdition. You know what that word perdition means? Damnation. But of them that believe to the saving of the soul. See, that's what this faith is all about. That we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is what our life is based on. Period. We're not trusting our own works. We're not trusting in anything extra biblical. Faith. We are of them that believe to the saving of the soul. For you are saved by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But see, there are those that draw back. And they draw back into perdition. They never had saving faith. They've tasted of the heavenly gifts, the Bible talks about in Hebrews. They've done these things, but they never... It's like the seed, the four types of seeds... There's one kind of seed that falls on good ground and bears 30, 60, and 90-fold, or 100-fold. But the other three kind fall on the ground, and that doesn't happen. You know, for a time, the one, you know, they, 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 they rejoice, but when hard times come, they fall away. That's what happens to most people. So it depends what kind of ground the seed fell on. And the ones that draw back... The ones that endure for a time, but when persecution comes, they draw back. Those are the ones we're in reference to here. They draw back into perdition. They never really got saved. Remember, when Jesus talks to these people at the great right throne judgment, He says, Depart from me, ye that worketh iniquity, I never knew you. He didn't say, well, you were saved for like ten minutes, or ten days, or ten years, and then you drew back into perdition. See, I believe if you get saved, you're going to stay saved. Okay, I'm, I, I believe that. I believe that if you're really truly saved and the Holy Spirit's really living inside you, you're going to do what it takes. Not because you're saved through works, but because God that lives inside you is going to give you the strength to do whatever is required. No matter if you think you can handle it or not. It's not about you. We are crucified with Christ according to Galatians 2.20 and nevertheless we do not live, but Christ liveth within us. We are supposed to be dead. We're supposed to be like dead men. According to Galatians, we're dead to ourselves, but Christ liveth within us. Okay? So it's not about you. Remember, John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. Jesus Christ. That's what our prayer should be. That he, that ourselves and our flesh decrease while Christ increases. So I wanted to go over that, because I think that's a, that's a verse where a lot of people could get tripped up. I hope I did a, an okay job of explaining that, because it's kind of a dicey subject. But we have to compare this with Scripture under Scripture. So then, what is the proper function, role, or vocation of women according to, of, of women according to the Scripture? 1 Timothy 5, 14-15, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. This is what a woman is called to. 
This is the highest calling for a woman. And there's no shame in it. There is no shame in this. Oh, but I want my career too. You're already out of God's will then. You're sure not in compliance with the word of God. Well, if that's the God you serve, I don't want anything to do with him. Well, you won't have anything to do with him. And you're going to be burning in hell. Because you're in rebellion. And rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. I'm sorry. But if that's if that's your attitude, that's rebellion. How do you get saved being rebellious? How do you come to God in a rebellious state? Well, God, I'll take you on my terms. I'll say this little big quick prayer and, and I'll, 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 you know, I'll give my soul to you, but I ain't going to give very much. I'm just going to do my own thing. Don't work that way. You don't come to God on, you come to God on God's terms. You come to God when the Spirit beareth witness with your spirit. And you get saved then. You know, it's only a matter of eternal salvation. It's only a matter of, of either eternity in the lake of fire or heaven. I mean, that's not that big of a deal, right? Oh, it's a huge deal. It's as, it's as serious as it gets. So it says right here, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some are already turned aside after Satan. It says that right here. Now, these are the verses that apply to women in the Bible, in the New Testament. Not every single one, but the main ones, I think we could see a lot of confirmation there. Um, and, you know, that's just the, that's just the deal. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go to our last part right now. And we'll finish out with this last part.